the rest. 
Today, um, I, I, I lied by accident last week. We are not starting a new sermon series today. Sorry. We are um, doing that the week after uh, Scott Ball is here, starting the book of Ephesians. And so um, today is a standalone where I will be talking about truth-telling, a Christian vision for truth-telling, something that's been burning in my heart for a bit now. So if you have a Bible, um, go to the book of, of, of uh, 2 Samuel in chapter 12, that's page 305 in your Red Pew Bible. Um, when I say truth-telling, what we will not be talking about is like the idea, you know, what is truth? Like those kind of big, almost philosophical questions. Not so much that kind of truth, certainly, I guess, related. More so, I'm talking about the kind of truth-telling in our lives that is uh, um, honest about us, our shortcomings. You know, I really pray, like, how do I, like, introduce something like this? And the best way I can do it is just think of your own heart. Think of your own life, your own story. Nobody in this room has lived a perfect life, free of missteps, whether intentional or accidental. There's a good chance some of you in this room have done even horrific things. You haven't told anybody about them. And there's this like heavy weight and burden just kind of within you that it's in your past. You know it's there and you want to be a, a new and changed person, but you haven't just been clear or honest with anyone about what you have walked out of. And it's still just as a cloud lingers over you that maybe some of you here, I mean, at minimum, we all know that, that we, we are fallen people. We are not perfect people. There's something inside of us that you know, just, just seems to, to rage and just be selfish, selfish and, and, and sometimes even hating towards other people. And we just, we only want those feelings. We suppress them. But there's, the truth of the matter is we're not perfect. We've done some dumb things in the past and our human instinct is to not talk about it. Our human instinct is to figure out ways to preserve an image of our innocence through many kind of, you know, defensive mechanisms. Um, combined, you know, in our world of, of media and increased, you know, information and communication, you know, we, we're coming very uh, accustomed to this. Those of us who have social media accounts, which I regrettably do, I, I don't like social media, but I'm there sometimes. Um, all social media really is, is like an online avatar of what you want yourself to appear. That's all it is. It's your own public relations campaign that you're in complete control of. It's truthful. I mean, you know, when Alex and I get in a little argument and she's like mad at me, I'm not like, wait, stop, you look really mad. Let me snap this, Instagram this. Like, I want people to see how mad you are at me. Like, we don't do that. We go hiking and climb the mountain after four hours. It's like, guys, look, I just climbed a 7,000-foot mountain, and I'm awesome. Or, you know, we get ourselves looking really nice, better than we wake up on Tuesday morning with, uh, you know, and we're all combing here. It's like, now look, picture time. Yeah, see my best. You know, like, we want to control our image, right? And this is why anxieties are so prevalent with younger people as they have grown up with social media, and this effect of just always seeing the smiles and the goodness and not the real, the fullness of people's lives, the truth of it that you get from actually doing life with people, it creates anxieties. It creates insecurities and they go deep. In our society, we're, we're just getting kind of numb to this image making to, to tell people or show people what we want to tell people. So the Christian vision for truth telling, I must say, is quite different. And I want to walk through that. But before we do, I want to talk about the church as a whole as well. 
in our church in the city of Wilmington, like we, we would like the city to have a positive image of us. Like we want to be here to serve our city, to be a glimpse of what we understand Jesus to be to our city, but we're full of imperfect people. We also make mistakes. And I've seen many churches try to do the, the same things that we do in our social media accounts when, you know, rough things happen and churches make mistakes. They figure out ways to say, well, actually, let's just not tell everybody like everything that happened. I'm trying to get my wallet on my way. And um, instead of doing that, we'll just, you know, not tell the fullness of the truth. We'll kind of figure out a way to like spin it a little bit and like, you know, put up another image that says, actually, we're not that bad, guys. You know, it's okay. And we'll close the door on the nitty gritty details, but we'll put up another image. And this is, you know, it happens. We do this even as a church. Um, uh, They aren't modern problems. Garden of Eden, the second page of our Bibles, these things happen. It's like, right there at the very beginning of time, one of the first things we learned how to do was try to cast out our image of innocence and blame somebody else. Like that was literally from there from day one. So these are not new problems. They've been with us forever. But the idea of Christ, which we claim is God in the flesh who came to earth, okay, and and the way that John, uh, the apostle John talks about him, as we'll get in the back end of our sermon, we'll revisit this. He says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jesus elsewhere also said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Truth is part of who he is, his identity. You can't separate truth from Christ. You know, when when David would pray things like, you delight in truth and the inward being, Jesus didn't have to pray that prayer because there was just truth there and what he expressed was an exact representation of the truth within him because sin was not present in his life. He was completely unified. When David says, unite my heart to fear your name, God, he didn't need, Jesus didn't need to pray to unite his heart because it was united in truth because he is truth. And so as we walk through this, the question is going to be as a congregation, as Christians in this room, as people in this room, How can we be truth tellers as individuals and as a church? How can we, if Jesus is marked and characterized by grace and truth and we're the body of Christ as representation on earth, the question would be, we must also be full of grace and truth. And if we're not, we're not representing the Christ whom we claim to be our God and our Savior. I want to walk through this by starting in 2 Samuel um, some will summarize chapter 11, do a little bit of storytelling here because this is one of the more famous stories, right? Even if you didn't grow up going to church all the time, you might have heard of this story before. This is the time of the kingdom, King David, right? The first, I guess you can say, legitimate um, king of Israel. It was springtime. He was some years into his new kingship. And uh, springtime in some more kind of unstable areas of our world is when the winter seasons are over, the rainy season, there's a little bit of a break after winter in the rain seasons. So if there's battles to be fought, it's it's time to do it. So it's springtime when his soldiers and his armies and his commander, they're out fighting. Sometimes a king can go, sometimes he can't. In this case, we don't know why. David was not out with his army. He was back in Jerusalem, probably taking care of some domestic issues in his own kingdom. And in the evenings in Israel, even to this day, many have rooftop porches. 
um, because it's pleasant there. In the evenings, there's a breeze. This kind of, it it is known, it it cools off the area after a nice hot day. And so David is walking around enjoying the evening breeze and he looks over and he sees um, a woman bathing. It is a a ritual effort of cleanliness for herself, but she is bathing on top of her roof and it's rather public. And David sees it, okay? Now the question is, did Bathsheba know that he was there and he knew she knew that he would be out and about and she was it's not exactly clear you know maybe so we don't really know though but at the end of the day this is what happened David sees her and he says to his guys like I think I know who that is who is that tell me again and this is who she is her name is Bathsheba she's a daughter of Elam Elam is mentioned later on as one of David's mighty men think of like the Navy SEALs David had his Navy SEALs there's about 30 of them her father's one of them and her husband's one of them. And her grandfather, which is Ahithophel, is that right? Yeah. Um, he was one of David's trusted counselors. So chances are David was just kind of confirming like, yeah, I think I, I know who that is. Because this is a, she's a part of a pretty well-respected, influential, important family in his kingdom. In every front. Right? And there she is. And she's alone. Her husband's gone. He and her father's gone in battle. And so um, what happens is he invites her in, maybe has dinner with her. We know what's going on. And then a couple of, you know, some time goes by and she sends word, I'm, I'm pregnant. This is kind of a Jerry Springer situation. Let's be honest. It's what's going on here. Um, David's in trouble because some people in his own palace knew that, oh, that woman's pregnant while her husband's not around, and we, didn't we see her come in here? Like, didn't we, didn't he send us to bring her, didn't they spend the night alone? Oh, okay. Like, people, it was not gonna, it was not be hard to piece together some puzzles of the picture here. So what does David do? He schemes. Because we talked about the beginning, right? We want to preserve images of our innocence. We still do this today. We like, we like giving an image of ourselves that we can control, We don't want people to know the nitty-gritty truth of what's going on inside. So what does David do? He calls for Uriah, her husband, back. And he has some plans. And he's like, so Uriah, what's going on? How you doing? How's the battle going? And this is like one of his Navy SEALs. And he's he's like, you know, I'd probably rather be fighting right now, but okay, you want me here, so let me tell you some reports of what's going on. And David's like, cool. Well, you know, go home and see your wife. Tell her I said hello and blah, blah, blah. And so he's like, no, actually, my brothers are fighting. I'm not going to go home and see my wife. And, and no, I'm not going to go home and like enjoy food. And me- I'm going to do that. I'm going to stay here. Like my, my, my co-soldiers you know, soldiers are suffering and I, I refuse to give myself such pleasantries. David's like, ah, what do I do now? So he waits a little bit, a day or two. Then he has the rye over for dinner. Keeps pushing the, the strong drink in front of him to maybe cloud his judgment. Puts a little bribe of a gift on his doorsteps at home and says, now go home. I got a gift for you too. And he's like, no. And so he takes a nap on um, David's front steps and doesn't still go home. So David's like, well, if I can't get that story going, because I could have, you know, absolved myself at that point. You know, oh, her husband went home. And that's, you know, that's why she has a baby. So I can't do that. Okay, what do I do next? He writes a letter and he seals it up. He puts it in Uriah's pocket. And he says, all right, when you get back to the battlefield, give this to Joab, the commander. Little does Uriah know that that letter in his pocket on the way back to the battlefield is, a, is instructions for Joab to say, get Uriah, one of my best men, put him in the harshest fighting, 
And then I want you to pull everybody back. And I want him to die. I don't, we don't know Joab's thoughts. I mean, the king says it. You got to do it. Joab's probably thinking like, no, like no way. So Joab surrounds him with some of his best men. He tries to maybe see if he can somehow get away with not this, you know, this, a different result because he, he needs his man here. And then it didn't work and Uriah ultimately dies on the battlefield. Um, so at this point, um, you know, uh, David's thinking, well, uh, he's out of the picture. So, you know, now I'm free to do whatever I want to do, right? And so he probably takes a sigh of relief. Is like, all right, so now people won't really know the truth, right? People's not going to know the truth. Maybe I can just go marry her now and then, you know, all will be well. And so um, that's what's going on, okay? Um, it was an injustice, okay? And we know this. And so when the messenger came back and told David that Uriah was dead, David said this. He says, don't be displeased at this. Don't be upset. Don't think it's evil that he died. It happens. It happens. The same language he used, don't be displeased. Don't be evil. It's all good. He's dead. It is what it is. It's a battle. People die. As the chapter ends, using the same exact word, it says, but the Lord was displeased at what happened. God has a different opinion on the matter. God has a different perspective here. He knows the truth. And because God is truth, he's going to expose the truth. And that is where we are in 2 Samuel 12. We'll pick it up there. Now the Lord sent Nathan to David. Who was Nathan? He was a prophet who was alive in that time. One of David's you know, advisors, he had him close. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town. Oh, David, tell a little parable here, right? There was one rich man and one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, it grew up with him and his children, it shared his food, it drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. In other words, prepare it means kill and eat. So you guys tracking with this? Nathan comes up with a little story here, okay? And he tells this parable. And um, uh, uh, David's response, I mean, you understand what's going on. David, as king, by the way, this is a practice in these ancient times. The Bible doesn't really ever affirm it because it always brings trouble. Kings had many wives, multiple wives. They also had concubines. So David had plenty of, of women in his life, in other words, okay? And little Uriah had Bathsheba. And so we see the parallels of what is going on. David's response beginning in verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. You read this, you're thinking like, whoa, 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 son, like, chill out. Like, this is just a story, isn't it? Like, what are you freaking out, David? Like, what's going on? He's like, he kind of bugged out a little bit. And, you know, you kind of read into it thinking like, David, we've all done this. Like, maybe you're trying to like, hide something and the, a similar situation pops up that you know you're hiding. 
and you want to give this like extreme response to hopefully like hide the fact that you're guilty of that same thing and convince somebody like I'm actually righteous, like I'm really angry at this. David knows that he's not righteous inside when it comes to this. He wants an appearance of this more than likely in front of Nathan. So maybe he'll think I'm, I'm, I'm good here. Maybe he'll think I'm straight, right? And that's probably why he had such an intense reaction. Now here's the reality, guys. Confrontation is never fun. As a pastor, like I, I've had to confront people over the years on things. And it's not like an, something that I enjoy. Like I don't enjoy conflict. I've met people who like enjoy fighting. And I was not the kind of friends I like in my, have in my life, right? Um, that's a problem too. If you enjoy conflict and you enjoy picking a fight with somebody, you, you have your own problems. But it's not fun to confront, but sometimes it is the most loving thing to do to simply tell somebody the truth. In our day and age, like this is not comfortable. We're just, we're, we're, we're so softened up by just these constant images of like, no, this is nice. We're all happy. You need to be happy. You need to be good. And sometimes if we understand that we're fallen people who do wrong things and that we are image bearers of God as he is seeking to renew us and to restore us to live in light of the truth of his original design for human beings. He wants us to just flush out all these things. Sometimes it requires some confrontation to say, you need to turn from this stuff. Do you, do you see this? Are you blind to it? This is in your life. And you have to sometimes be that guy like Nathan does right here. Listen to Nathan's words. Now, mind you, this is the king. King could have your head if you want to go and confront him, right? He has all authority in this day and age. Nathan's putting a lot on the line for this. In verse seven, Nathan says to David, you are the man. Now, it's one of those the phrases you hit, you kind of get the goosebumps, and you're like, whew, that's intense, right? That's intense. You are the man. He continues on. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in the secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Harsh words. The truth was told uh, to Nathan uh, by Nathan the prophet, and David is judged guilty. He did it in secret. His effort at creating his own image of innocence failed because God knows all truths. Nathan lists many consequences that will come. If you read the story on, you'll see that David's whole family became like exactly like a Jerry Springer family. It was messy. It was sloppy. It was rough. All right. Things went south for his family. And all intents and purposes, he wasn't the best father, as you see when you read these stories. But sin is a communal thing. You guys know this. I tell my kids this all the time. And Abel, he's here, and he'll testify almost every day. We say it. When you sin, it affects everybody around you, right? If you 
drop the ball, which I know we all do, right? It does affect those around you, but what, it gets even worse when you like stuff things down. You're just multiplying the problems as you do so. Sin is a communal act, not an individual, individual one only. It is a communal act. We're so used to thinking as individuals in America, right? Other places in the world, in these more collective societies where community is, is necessary for survival. Like we, we don't usually think that way, but sin is a communal event. It affects everyone around you. And I want to pause for a few minutes here and consider certain kinds of responses David could have given that maybe some of us in this room are guilty of doing, whether intentionally or not, when it comes to being confronted. Because still, when you're confronted, you can still figure out ways to like weasel yourself out of owning it. Here's some, th- th- some things that we can do that we see happening um, even in our culture quite often. Something called gaslighting. He could have uh, went on the raid, you know, the, the path of gaslighting Bathsheba and Nathan. Um, the term gaslighting comes from a 1938 play called Gaslight, where a husband was trying to hide his criminal activity from his wife, and in doing so, he attempted to convince her that she was going crazy by dimming the gaslights, it's an old play, in his apartment, and then her saying, oh, the lights are dim. He goes, no, they're not. What? And he wanted to think she was going crazy that she was doubting her own credibility. So when she was seeing him maybe doing some criminal things, she was like, well, I mean, I must be losing my mind because the lights apparently aren't dim. So I must be like not seeing that for reality with him either. It's discrediting the witness. It's discrediting the one who is bringing the truth. That's the idea of gas lighting, right? In other words, David could have said this. He could have been like, uh, to, to, to Nathan, well, you haven't heard the stories of, of Bathsheba, right? Do you really know the details here? Like, you don't know the truth about some of the stuff that, that I've heard about here. Like, maybe instead of, like, confronting me, like, she needs her own prophetic, you know, confrontation, right? Or, like, you know, you know, Nathan, I've always had a hard time with you and your prophet status because of, you know, that one time, you know, we're close friends, and I saw you do that one thing, and I don't know, like, do prophets do that? Like, did you really hear from the Lord here? Like, are you confident that you really could hear from the Lord? Because maybe you're off here, right? Maybe you're off. Like, David could have done that to try to discredit Nathan. So he's like, well, yeah, maybe, like, I didn't hear this right. Like, all right, so, yeah, maybe maybe I am wrong. Like, that's the thing. It's called gaslighting. But sometimes we can unintentionally even do that to somebody who is trying to bring truth to us. It's no way to suppress the truth. Another thing we can sometimes do is blaming others and painting yourself as the victim. That's a very common one. David could have been like, well, look, guys, like, I'm king, I'm stressed out. Okay, she was the one outside taking the bath. I was in a vulnerable spot. Don't you understand what's going on? Like, like I, I, I feel taken advantage of in this scenario. Okay, I wasn't thinking clearly. Like, I need help. I'm the one who needs... And turning it in and making himself be the victim rather than, um, uh, you know, the victim of somebody else, rather than owning his own mistakes. We can do that as well. The last one we'll look at is... Um, uh, silencing the truth. I don't know if you ever, you know, I remember when I was a teenager, oh, you know, I didn't write this down. I don't even remember what the event was, but my buddy learned something. I was like 14. I was like, don't tell my parents. Like anything I can do for you, like I'll give you like 20 bucks. Like just don't tell them, right? Like we want to just suppress it and silence it and say, shut the door on that. No, 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 it doesn't get out. Don't tell anybody, right? I, what was that? I'll, I'll remember and email you guys later because I'm sure it's a funny story. But we, we, we want to do that as well. Like somebody knows the truth, like, okay, look, it's not good if this gets out for many reasons. Shh, just 
don't tell anybody. Just silencing the truth. Again, preserving the image of innocence. You look at Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? When, when they were confronted on actually, you know, not believing God's word and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Adam was confronted by God, what did he do? Well, you gave me a woman, God, and she's the one who gave me the apple. That's, that's there on like page one, right? Adam was saying like, huh, what are you looking at me? You, you, aren't you? Didn't you give me her? Unless she's the one who did it, God. I don't know, maybe you, you know, should think about your, like he was trying to cast blame on, on God. And then Eve's turn, she's like, um, well, the, the serpent, like the snake, he, he's the one who tempted me. It was just another exchange of blame. Nobody owned it. And what were they doing? They were hiding in shame behind a bush, right? They were trying to hide. They didn't want anybody to see the truth and kept casting blame off of others. But what's most impressive about David here, he doesn't do any of this stuff. This is why David is just such an interesting person because he's not perfect. He has, he committed murder. Like that's, that's rough. If there's some bad things to do in life, murder's up there on the list. And what does David do? This is the response. I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't try to hide it. He doesn't try to cast up, it's like, none of that, he doesn't do any of these things. He doesn't try to gaslight, nothing. He just says, you're right, I've sinned against the Lord. He just admits it. Doesn't say so, but I would just, I would just imagine that it's like thousand pound weight on David's spirit just is like, and just falls right off. And I can just imagine him just, an eruption of tears just comes out. He's just like, yes. I've done this. Because when you confess those sins, it is like a, 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 it is that feeling of just like something's gone now. Like I can breathe. I can breathe. We'll get to the gospel here in a minute as to see um, uh, how uh, the gospel informs that process of confession. And what does Nathan reply? He says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not gonna die, <laughs> Right? But because by doing this, you have made enemies of the Lord and shown utter contempt. After, uh, oh, I didn't uh, finish that. But after Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David. He became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of the household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with him. And the story then continues on. But... There was consequences for the sin, but he came clean. And so I want to go to the New Testament now and talk about truth-telling and Jesus and um, the gospel. And ask, revisit the question, how do we become known as a church, as Christians, for truth-telling? How do we become a congregation known and characterized by these things? We have to look at the gospel because... We know this is hard business. We know that it's by our natures we saw, our sinful nature at the very beginning, like our immediate response is to not tell the truth. And we have to, we have, we have to actually fight to expose the truth. And like fight, like even yesterday, I, you know, Alex and I get a little tuffle and, and she was like, are you okay? And I was like, look, I'm at war myself. Just give me a minute. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I know the feelings that I'm feeling are, are not what I should be feeling. So I'm just, I'm gonna sit here in, in silence and just like battle that right now because I don't wanna sin more. And maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about if you wanna be honest, 
right? When we become like self-aware, like, man, like I'm just thinking about myself right now and I could really make more destruction. So I'm just going to go to war right now with myself. And <laughs> it happens. Like, how does the gospel inform that? What is the spirit's role in that process, right? Um, uh, let, let's look at this. We already said at the beginning, Jesus is found. I'll say it this way. Jesus is found wherever truth is found. I'll state that one more time. First application point here. How do we become a, a, a truth-telling church? Well, Jesus is found wherever truth is found. John 1 says that Jesus was full of truth and grace. The cool part about that, if you go to John chapter 1 and read those, that portion of Scripture there, it says that he was, he was full of the glory of God. He was full of glory. What was the glory of Christ? You know, glory is like I've said it before. It's like the things that, you know, uh, you know I've used an example of myself. I'll use Abel again. He's here. Embarrassing him. You know, he's a musician. He likes music. I'm a musician too, right? And if you go in his room, you'll, you'll quickly tell, oh, he's a musician. There's a guitar. There's stuff. You know, I was a kid, I had guitars all over my walls. Like, that's part of the glory of him. That was my glory when I was young, too, and I still like the music. Like that, that's that characterized who I am. What characterized Jesus? Truth and grace that exuded from him. That was what people saw when they met him. That's what he was known by. That was his glory because he is truth and he is grace. Therefore, when the truth of our sin is exposed, if we boldly proclaim the truth, we were saying this, Christ came to pay for that. Like the whole idea of his death is to say that that is the result of the, the wickedness of humankind is death. Like that's the punishment. And he, he actually died on our behalf as our substitute. Therefore, there's no sin too great or too small that is not paid for. And if we actually believe that, church, like if we have trust in that, when it comes time to tell the truth, we rely on that and say, well, he's already paid for that. And he needs to serve for this in this situation to continue to redeem me. Therefore, I'm just going to tell the truth because it's going to expose the glory of Christ and his grace before me trying to make the little some dodgy, you know, uh, uh, ninja moves to try to get weasel myself out of this one. Right? No, no, no. Let Jesus surface. Let his truth, let him surface when you're confronted. And that shows that you really like embrace the gospel. Like you're actually acting on, upon the gospel in that moment. And the spirit of God has filled you in order he's, he's pushing you towards that crevice. Like he's within you to shape you, mold you, make you like Jesus. So he's pushing you in that direction to say, if you're confronted, like he's, he's just, he's like, tell it, like just own it. Like you're, you have nothing but grace. Truth cannot exist without grace. And this is the thing is like, when we, when we tell the truth, we know that there's nothing but grace around the corner. Yes, consequences, absolutely. Sometimes consequences are hard, and we all know that. But we know there's nothing but grace from our God available for us. That leads us to the second point, that grace must be found where truth-telling is found. What did Nathan say to David after he confessed? Did he say, like, you're right, you murderer, you, you, you stupid, like, you know. He didn't just go off on him, right? What did he say? Your sin's forgiven. Grace. Consequences, yes, but there's grace from God. Your sin is forgiven. If I go to you, like if we're a congregation that wants to rely on one another and just to be honest and, and vulnerable, let those, those burdens of sin just cast off, we can, we can only really do so if I know that the person I'm talking to is going to extend the grace that Christ would if he was standing in front of me. 
if I don't have that kind of trust, I'm not going to tell you my, my junk because you may use it as a weapon to like hit me up, up, upside the head with it later, right? We have to develop trust in one another to say, look, I know you're, you're a gracious, are you a gracious and forgiving person? Are you willing to, like Christ, just extend nothing but forgiveness and be a listening ear to say, just let your burdens off. Let's, let's let it go. Christ said, my, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. First John 1.8 says that he is faithful and just to cleanse us and forgive us of all unrighteousness. Right? When the truth is told, be agents of grace to look people in the eye and say, it's okay. You're forgiven. Now, you're a new creation in Christ. The old man is gone. Behold, the new has come. Let's step forward together in this new person and grace. That is how a church builds one by one to be a community of truth and grace. Too much grace and no truth? We have a bunch of immature Christians who never get called out on their stuff. Only truth and no grace? Then this thing is like a hammer and you're just, boom, just beating people down with it. Truth and grace. I love it. Like it's such a, it almost feels like a contradiction, does it not? Like, how can those two things coexist? And that's what Christianity has to offer that you don't find anywhere else. Like, you just don't find this kind of thing in other religions. Like, this is uniquely Christian because the truth has been dealt with. Like, it's, truth is bloody. It is violent. It is, like, study the crucifixion. Like, that is the result of the truth of our sin. It is nasty. It is harsh. It is ugly. But look at the resurrection and you'll see the grace that says I've conquered those things. And you see the blind beggars, you see the rejects from society being brought in close to Jesus and receiving love and grace and forgiveness. You see David like him, like murderers receiving grace from God. You don't find those things anywhere else outside of the good news of Jesus Christ. And church, as we close today, um, uh, I want to um, encourage you. I, I can call, um, we're taking communion next. And so as you prepare for communion, um, uh, can we be reminded of the grace that is offered to us and the truth of our sin by remembering his death, his blood shed for us, his body broken for us. And my charge is after our time of communion, um, some questions I have for you is, um, are you willing to commit to this? to our church, to one another, to be a truth-telling congregation, to be a gracious congregation? Will we seek such a filling of the Spirit that we are just guided towards these things and we become characterized by them just as Jesus is characterized by it? And today, is there truth that you need to get off of your chest right now to unload on to the cross? Because you know what, I didn't mention this. This is very, very important. One of the most important things I want to say today. If you continue to suppress your truth and just, I'm fine, I'm not going to unload my burden, what you are doing is trying to save yourself. You're saying, my efforts of suppressing the truth are greater than the cross. I can do a better job of hiding and doing away than my sin just by suppressing it. That's what you're saying. And the gospel says, no, it's going to fail your efforts will fail. You can't save yourself. You can't wash away your sins by suppressing the truth. Only Christ can. And I invite you this morning to come before him in this time of response of communion 
and believe the gospel. Jesus, um, we thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection. Lord, these are challenging words. I wish I had, you gave me something nice and, you know, for Labor Day and lighthearted. I don't know, Lord, you put this word in my heart. But Lord, uh, I, I, I want to lead Emmanuel into these things, Lord, because they're beautiful and they're wonderful things, Lord. May we grow in grace and in truth as a church, holding one another accountable in our lives that we may bear more and more of your glory as we are known as people of both truth and grace. In the ways that we have failed as individuals or even as a church as we will and we have, Lord, we, we, just, we ask for your grace and your forgiveness, Lord, and your, uh, your help by your spirit to equip us for this kind of work. That the city of Wilmington, as they continue to get to know us and interact with us, they will, they will Know us as those are honest people, but gracious and such loving people, just like you were. Help us to know how to walk that line, Lord. And I pray for that person now as we, um, as, as Larry will lead us in communion that just needs to release any burdens of sin that they are stuffing down. Lord, may this be the time when they cast off that weight, Jesus, onto you. And if one of us receives that story today, may we be agents of grace to that person. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen. As we close, we want to just sing this song because he knows my name, which fits well. I didn't know what Daniel was going to be preaching today, but he knows everything about us. He knows our sin, but he knows that Jesus, he sent Jesus to die for us so that we can experience that grace. So let's affirm that together as we close the service.
Jesus. 